Hello from your favorite Grasslands PR team. This week we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Nicole. And I'm Rachel. And today we are doing a purely fun and optimistic episode <laughs> on a bird that chases summer in a migration that's been described as among, quote, the most impressive avian gatherings in North America since the demise of the passenger pigeon. Unquote. Well, now I'm sad about passenger pigeons. You know what? Everything is going to have sad components. Like, we are going to be reminder, wow, reminded of the grasshopper apocalypse. Um, but we're just taking optimistic slants on everything, you know? That's, that's the, the core of this episode. Um, do you know who our subject is? (laughs) Um, I don't know, but can you hear Murphy purring? Because it's really cute. I'm not editing I out can't. if it gets picked up. <laughs> I can't on Discord, but I'm sure the microphone's going to pick it up. <laughs> He's a very lovely kitty. Aww. Anyways. Okay, I'll give you a clue. In the game Wingspan, this bird has a hunting power. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> think, think about the grasshopper apocalypse that's coming. I don't know, man. Oh my gosh. Okay, well... um. We're talking about the Swainson's hawk. Aww. (laughs) That's not the first bird I think of when I think of, like, awe-inspiring migrations. But I guess, yeah. People do watch, like, hawk overlook points, like, all throughout the U.S., so. Okay. Oh, yeah. And there's, like, specific places people go just to watch this, like, spectacle. Yeah. it's It's a whole thing. I apologize for the record if anybody is hearing, like, vague squeaky sounds from my recording. Um, I'm sure Nicole's going to try very hard to edit it out. That is my (laughs) lizard Tom Bombadil uh, glass surfing behind me, so my bad. We just have a lot of really needy animals. (laughs) We we sure do. I wouldn't have it any other way, though. But first... So, a small piece of news for us at Grassland Groupies. If you haven't seen it yet, we were actually in the local Wichita Eagle, which is super exciting. Um, We had a little piece written by Sarah Spicer, and it's really, really cute, and you should definitely check it out if you haven't yet. It was also picked up by the Associated Press, and we might have some other articles coming out soon, so keep an eye out. So welcome to any of you who are joining us, uh, because you just heard about us. That's that's neat. Yeah. But on with the hawks. There you go. Thank, thank you for You're that welcome. beautiful transition. Um, yeah, so I guess to to start off, um, I wanted to mention why the heck this bird is even called a Swainson's hawk, because it's not descriptive at all of the bird. And as you know, we uh, support bird names for birds, and this is one of those relevant birds uh, affected by that movement that the AOS is, sorry, the American Ornithological Union Society? Society, yeah. I guess AOU <laughs> is the one that's changing the name. They're, they're yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, the AOU is working on <laughs> changing some of these names. Swainson is named after William Swainson, who actually has six birds currently named after him. Uh, there were two additional ones that are no longer named after him. They, they were changed some time ago. But he was just like an amateur ornithologist. I'm not trying to downplay his naturalist achievements. He was <laughs> an amateur ornithologist, author and illustrator uh, from like the 17 to 1800s. And 
he actually ended up settling, and I mean settling in the colonizer sense. There's some very uh, strained histories uh, between William Swainson and the Maori people in New Zealand. Um, but he ended up settling in New Zealand, and it's actually likely that he never even saw any of the birds that are named after him. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know, that really upsets me. <laughs> uh, he spent most of his life in New Zealand, actually, um, doing some pretty horrible things. And his time as a naturalist was really important, I think. You know, he worked alongside Audubon, and Audubon actually named a bird after him specifically. Uh, but because he had absolutely no professional training, despite being like a pretty well-known author, illustrator, and naturalist, um, he was passed up for jobs in that field and had a bunch of, yeah, things that occurred that were negative in his life and that led him to eventually leave the field altogether and head to New Zealand. Hmm. So that's the, the Swainson's hawk. He probably never even saw a Swainson's hawk. He didn't discover it. It's just some guy that people at the time were absolutely going crazy over. And they were just like, wow, Swainson, what a great guy. He does great bird illustrations. Let's name like eight birds after him, um, which is huh. stupid. In my opinion, I think it's cooler to name birds after bird things <laughs> Yeah, for sure. uh, than people who had nothing to do with them. But yeah, so the, the Swainson's hawk, just to reiterate, has been described as one of the most impressive avian gatherings you can see today, certainly, um, and possibly in, in history, too. And that's pretty cool, because again, you don't think of that kind of thing when you think about big bird migrations. Like, when I think of big groups of birds, I think of, like, seeing millions of blackbirds or, you know, it feels like millions of blackbirds that are flocking up at, like, a National Wildlife Refuge at night or something. Um, yeah. But that probably doesn't occur to us, uh, Kansans, because we don't really see the the big um, numbers that they get to when they get to Central America. More on that later. So, so here we're going to step into the life of a Swainson's hawk. And uh, in order to do that, um, this is this is <laughs> Nicole. Yes. In this episode, you are going to be playing two roles. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> uh, you are going to be Nicole. You are also going to be a fresh baby Swainson's hawk. Oh, oh, we're gonna we're gonna go through your life as a Swainson's hawk, discovering the world and discovering how to be one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm in a choose-your-own-adventure RPG mood, okay? Don't come at me. So in order to set the scene, Nicole, I, I have a question for you. Uh, where would you like to live? I have four options for you. Would you like to live in California, Alberta, Canada, Arizona, or Oklahoma? I'm going to go Arizona. Arizona. Okay. This is really important. Thank you. <laughs> Nicole the Swainson Hawk. <laughs> the Swainson Hawk. <laughs> Uh, um, you hatch in a beautiful, like, typical platform hawk nest in a tree in Arizona. <laughs> um, and because your parents are wonderful grassland birds, uh, they picked a location that was a very grassland habitat, a sort of dry, grassy area with trees around, just sparse trees, though. Um, and your nest is situated up in a tree. You have a couple of siblings. Uh, you can tell us how you feel about them, if that matters to I you. I kicked them out all. of the nest. No! <laughs> 
Uh, that is that is actually not a thing that is on your uh, like list of choices in this choose your own adventure. Oh, okay. <laughs> you don't Darn. you don't kill your siblings. You love your siblings. In fact, uh, you really like <laughs> being around other birds. You you really love um, eating them sometimes, but also just like hanging out with them. Um, so it doesn't bother you that you have siblings. And being an Arizona Swainson's hawk, uh, your mom and dad bring you all kinds of yummy things like rabbits and lizards and snakes, a lot of reptiles for an Arizona Swainson's hawk. Um, and so far, I think you'll notice that your life sounds a lot like any other hawks, doesn't it? Indeed. 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 Um, as it gets especially hot in the summer, mom is going to stand over you and instead of like brooding you to keep you warm, she's actually shading you and your siblings to keep you out of the hot sun. And there's even like a nest of like house sparrows that has built into the bottom of your nest and they just kind of hang out there with you and you don't really mind it. And that's how your life begins. Here in this dry, step-like environment with your mom and your dad and As you grow up, it's time to leave the nest. And this is where your species begins to stand out. By the way, feel free to interject at any fucking point in time because (laughs) I really enjoy our episodes when they are conversational in nature and you have stupid things to add. (laughs) I mean, I already tried to kill my siblings and you wouldn't let me, so... Oh, I'm sorry for shutting down your sibling killing <laughs> behavior, but you can try something else if you want to guess. I don't okay. really mind. Thank you. Know. Yeah, you're welcome. Don't don't lose hope. There's those are the cool <laughs> things you can do. Fantastic. So, Nicole the Swainson's hawk, you leave the nest. And okay, so as far as like recognizing your species, I guess uh like a lot of other hawks, there's a ton of variation. The juveniles do look different from the adults. One thing they all tend to have in common is they have like beautiful bibs of dark coloration. Um, but the babies like you that are a little bit younger, sometimes your bib is kind of like more like spots than like a whole solid bib. Um, but yeah, you know how there's a, a million and one different colors of red-tailed hawks? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and like technically there are light morphs and dark morphs, etc. But really, it's just kind of an arbitrary grouping that means nothing because it's a whole continuum. Yeah. Yeah. The same is true of Swainson's hawks. <laughs> um, but the the arbitrary groupings of colorations that we've picked out to describe certain extremes of the spectrum are light morph, dark morph, and rufous. Some of them are just kind of a nice cinnamony color. Nice. Um, but yeah, as an immature bird, you recognize yourself. And as you leave the nest, you realize you really like hanging out with other Swainson's hawks. And this is not typical hawk behavior. Most hawks don't hang out in large groups like that. Um, Whereas you spot a bunch of Swainson's hawks on the ground over by a field and you're like, oh baby, those are my homies. And you're gonna fly (laughs) right down there and you are going to get onto the ground with them and you are going to run around. So this is also something that makes Swainson's hawks kind of fun and different. They walk around on the ground and run expertly. They're really good at that. So you can kind of think of them as like uh, raptors hunting on the ground, kind of like turkeys do. Um, in fact, uh, one account I read, 
describe them as hunting like turkeys, where they'll form large groups and uh, they'll walk around on the ground pouncing pouncing at and running down grasshoppers and crickets in those big Aww. groups. So it's like domestic turkeys even, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, pretty pretty similar to that. Have you ever, Nicole the human, seen <laughs> uh, hawks on the ground running around? I have. It's not usually the most elegant thing. So I was actually going to ask, are Swainson's hawks better at it? Like, I feel like most hawks kind of like mm, lumber and kind of wobble as they run. But- oh, they look awkward as hell. They okay. <laughs> they do not look uh, elegant while they do it, um, but they they are pretty good at it, and they're they're pretty good at catching food on the ground too. Okay. Uh, not as good at sorry, not as good as catching food on the wing actually, mm-hmm. but pretty successful. Um, and they, they will run it down, grab it with their talons. Sometimes they'll pop it into their beak and then like run after another one. But when uh-huh. they are running around, they have their wings like outstretched and yeah. they kind of toddle around and their wings are partially out. <laughs> Actually, they'll sometimes use this as a strategy to like flush prey out of hiding. They'll like run Ooh. up with their wings flapping, looking all awkward, and it'll scare something out of the brush. So they can just more expertly like jump onto it or, or something. But yeah. Um, so that ground feeding behavior, fairly unique. If you, dear listener, ever see a group of hawks on the ground doing that, it's, it's certainly Swainson's hawks. I'm not even saying almost certainly. It is absolutely Swainson's hawks because there are no North American raptors that are even as gregarious as this bird. So it's unusual to see a group of hawks. And they are certainly, almost certainly, Swainson socks if you do see that, especially if they're on the ground. Nice. So at this period, um, all of the birds that are around that are not breeding are obviously considered non-breeders. And since everybody's done breeding at this point, like everybody is a non-breeder, including Nicole the Swainson's hawk. And uh, you, non-breeders, begin to hunt communally. And you start eating everything. Um, I mentioned grasshoppers and crickets before, and you will eat everything from bats to flying insects, uh, feeding together on the ground, etc. But really, at this point, your diet begins to look very, very different. Unlike the typical raptor food that you started out your life eating, you begin to just go bananas for bugs. Bugs are everywhere. It's the end of summer. We're experiencing that right now in real life. <laughs> There's just <laughs> so many of the the grasshoppers are out and abundant. Um, cicadas. It's like this time of year is just like a bug symphony. And the Swainson's hawks are absolutely taking advantage of that. So um, as you're feeding on these bugs, you begin to feed almost exclusively on them. Like we're talking... Uh, maybe 94% of your diet is just bugs. Wow. Yeah, at this point. Um, And you're still in North America, so it's just a complete dietary switch before you've even really begun to move on or anything like that. To kind of back that up, um, there's some fun studies about this, like pellet analyses and stuff like that, um, stomach content analyses. There was a Swainson's hot collected in Kansas that had 98 crickets in its crop (laughs) and 132 crickets in its stomach. Wow. Yeah. And based on some pellet analyses, because uh, just 
for the listeners, if you're not aware, owls are not the only birds of prey that regurgitate pellets. Uh, pretty much all birds of prey actually do that. So you can actually analyze the pellets that are regurgitated by Swainson's hawks and other hawks. And those analyses have shown that a single hawk on average consumes like 100 grasshoppers a day. So Nicole, the Swainson's hawk, you're running around on the ground snatching up grasshoppers 100 times a day. And you are also catching them when they're flying and not just grasshoppers. So we're talking things like obviously cicadas, but dragonflies and caterpillars are making up a huge bulk of your diet. Um, The grasshoppers are by far the most prevalent, but like swarms of dragonflies, things like that, that are in the air, you'll go up in the air and catch them. And Some studies have shown that Swainson's hawks could catch flying insects at a rate of six insects every minute. Wow. So, like, you're managing to do some pretty impressive stuff. And, you know, this is not a small hawk. Swainson's hawks are large. Nicole, since you uh, are a female Swainson's hawk, uh, you are larger and heavier than the, the males of your species. But you're not really much smaller than a red-tailed hawk like we're we're not talking a tiny bird this is a large bird that is catching up to six insects every minute in the air yeah that's impressive so (laughs) impressive yeah (laughs) um now in arizona maybe you're not doing a lot of uh agricultural hunting necessarily but in some places like i saw a picture that was in california um you you know how irrigation systems will have like those really big like sprinklers that are on wheels and Mm. that move across so like there will be groups at this point in time in the season of like a hundred or or more swainson's hawk hawks wow of a (laughs) hundred or more swainson's hawks sitting on top of sprinkler systems um and then like as the sprinklers are rolling along like spraying the the crops all of the animals that get scared by the water and run away they'll just like swoop down and grab them oh my gosh that's genius (laughs) isn't that great and um you know like all birds you're learning these behaviors too and swainson's hawks are very crafty and opportunistic so like if you discover some ground squirrel holes, you are going to sit there at dusk and just wait for them to pop out and then like <laughs> just ambush them. Um, <laughs> if there were a fire, you would utilize that specifically to catch animals fleeing the fire. Um, if for some reason there was a flood, you would also uh, hunt that area and pick off all of the displaced animals. So they really love to chase around disturbances. And if there are... Uh, you know, human implements as well, or humans in tractors or whatever that are disturbing or scaring up bugs. Uh, you're right there with all your buddies hunting them down communally. Nice. <laughs> it's amazing. And this brings us to the end of the season, like August, September, when you are feeling in your Swainson's hawk bones, which are hollow and full of lungs. Um, so I guess we could say deep within your lungs. <laughs> um, the urge to leave your Arizona home. Um, and this urge hits you uh, as you and your buddies really begin to discover the magic of thermals. <laughs> so August, September, you have left your home 
and you and your buddies begin to move. And this is where things get like especially crazy with this species. Um, so first of all, here's here's how you are actually migrating. Because, you know, if you think of migratory birds, what's the first thing that usually pops into people's heads in terms of like watching them fly? Soaring? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, what I was looking for <laughs> was like, I don't know, geese or something in a V. Oh, uh, okay. I don't know, just like flying straight or whatever, which yeah. I mean, eventually you have to fly straight if you're trying to go somewhere, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, for Swainson socks, you are <clears> – <throat> what's a really – hang on. I've got to find a kind word to say uh, this. Um, you are very energy efficient when you fly. Um, we are not here to shame behavior that looks lazy to our capitalist human mindset. No, they are <laughs> energy efficient. Does it take you two months to reach your destination? Yes, but you do it in an extraordinary way. So – Here's what you do. On sunny days, you are migrating high in the air. I've actually got a quote here by Oberholzer. The spectacular flights of fall migrants are, on sunny days, usually high in the air, where birds soar along, seldom flapping. They pass in long, straggling lines or in clusters, which sometimes pause to wheel even higher on thermal updrafts. And... The, the pathways that these Swainson's hawks are using are sometimes called, like, uh, thermal streets. So there will be, like, a place or a zone of constant thermal uplift. And I'm sure most people have witnessed hawks or usually turkey vultures um, kind of soaring, soaring on those thermals. It's like a big pocket of warm air that's rising all the time because warm air rises. And you'll see these birds just kind of soaring in a circle, uh, slowly rising up. And that's a really easy, efficient way to get lift without even really having to flap your wings. So these hawks, you, Nicole the Swainson's hawk, (laughs) ride a thermal high up into the air and almost like... Out of sight of the ground is how high you are. Uh, you begin to glide. Some some people have described this as being like, uh, if you could picture long, flat clouds in the sky, uh, you might be flying within like the lower three meters or so of those clouds. So like up in those low clouds. And at that point, you'll just glide. And a hawk that's entering a street like that can sail 60 kilometers or more in a straight line without even losing any altitude. That's insane. Yeah. So basically without even having to flap your wings or maybe flapping your wings once or twice, you have risen to a cloud level and can fly just soaring without flapping your wings for 60 kilometers in a straight line. Kind of amazing. Did they, like, watch hawks for 60 kilometers, or did they, like, extrapolate from other, like, sources? Oh, that is an excellent question, and I'm so glad you asked, because this particular study in 1985 was done in a glider where they just followed them. (gasps) Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that's that's how this was discovered originally. Um, Yeah, but, I mean, hawk watches are such a thing, too. Uh, We've been 
performing hawk watches for a very long time, uh, which comes into play because sometimes when you're looking at like demographics and population numbers of birds like this, uh, there's always like this inkling in the back of your mind of, well, are we seeing more of them because there's more people reporting them and stuff like that. But in the case of hawks like this, um, we've been performing like very regulated, um, scientifically performed hawk watches for decades and decades. So we have really good data on this stuff. Yeah. So that's how you fly, Nicole. You just uh, keep going until you get a little bit low or you find a really good thermal and then you like lazily is a word I'm going to use because that's what you encounter. But this is not lazy. It is um, just efficiency. Yeah, you're just like being really efficient. Uh, Yeah, you you, uh, soar upwards a little bit more and then you keep going. And you fly that way during the day until night begins to fall. And sometimes you'll just roost in flocks of a hundred birds or more again in the trees. And then in the morning, as the sky warms up again, you wait for those thermals to get started. And then you can start heading skyward again without lifting any muscles. Nice. Amazing. And it's also good to note that I guess I've, I've never heard of this before. But apparently grasshoppers use the same thermals as these hawks sometimes. Ooh. I know. It's what, what, why? Why are grasshoppers migrating? I don't know anything about that. I always pictured dragonflies as migrating in big flocks. And I know that Swainson's hawks will feed aerially on dragonflies while they're migrating. But I read specifically that a lot of Swainson's hawks are aerially catching grasshoppers because they're in the same thermals together using the same thermals. Like, why? What? I don't understand. (laughs) Weird. Yeah. Yeah. No idea. Um, So in addition to catching these thermals, Nicole the Swainson's hawk, uh, you are also kind of pushed along sometimes by storms. So as uh, storms and those air fronts move along, uh, you will take advantage of those fronts and uh, use them to uh, and, and their winds to travel in the direction you're going. Sometimes it can throw your species off course uh they've ended up in some weird places because of that occasionally um but you're gonna have a smooth a smooth migration this time and it's gonna be just fine (laughs) (laughs) so as you keep going south because you are migrating south here it's like september october ish the numbers of hawks around you keep increasing and this is directly related to the fact that as you go south north america is narrowing and being thermal migrating birds you are not flying over the ocean if you have a choice you are going to be staying on land and so as you begin to get funneled down across the landmass, um as you reach say san antonio texas your group of hawks could be six kilometers wide and contain uh birds wow Yeah. Amazing. And when you reach Mexico, uh, your group of Swainson's hawks is joined by turkey vultures, Mississippi kites, and broad-winged hawks. So you have now basically become a sentient river of hawks in the air, and you're just like one little cog in this massive machine. And at this point, you have achieved the... um, What's another word for achievement? (laughs) 
you have achieved the status of one of the most spectacular and easily observed movements of birds in the new world and possibly anywhere. Um, so at this point, this is where we're starting to see um, tourist destinations pop up of people who have traveled there from all over just to watch your sentient river of hawks fly over. Um there have been nearly 350,000 Swainson's hawks counted passing over a single point in Panama City in October and November. Uh, in Veracruz, Mexico, uh, there have been 845,000 hawks counted in a single autumn in, in that town. So th- these are incredible movements. And Almost the entire population of Swainson's hawks that exists, period, is condensed into these areas. So this is the entire continent's worth of birds just getting pushed and funneled through Panama. It's an incredible sight and something that I hope to witness for myself someday. Aww. Uh, How long does it take for them to fly over these places? Um, that's such a good question, because they move really slow. Um, I... So on there, I don't have a stat with me uh, for the fall migration at the moment, but during the spring migration, when they're traveling the other direction, which is pretty much considered, like, the same, but in reverse. um, Sure. They traveled on average 150 kilometers a day. Um, and it is kind of staggered. So it is a river. They're all kind of moving through like in a line because you started off in Arizona and not um, Canada. You're yeah. going to be passing through sooner than some of your other bird brethren. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, an average of 150 kilometers a day. Okay. Again, very slow because of the style that you're choosing to migrate in. But you're also stopping to consume food and you're really saving yourself on energy. So it works out. It's a different strategy than birds that fly for two days straight <laughs> and just get there. Yeah, for sure. So it is, it's very leisurely. It's not like Purple Martins, how they all kind of gather up and like all move at once. Yeah. It's just like a steady stream over like days or weeks. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um. Like, I, I think usually when they talk about the peaks of the season, and I could actually probably go mm. find that right now, but, um, you know, for every area, they'll have, like, a, about a two-week period where they say the peak numbers occur. Um, okay, yeah. So, yeah, uh, slow and leisurely, which is another reason why it's probably a really spectacular sight and why it's a great thing to go witness because you're able to find them when they're kettling or, you know, forming those big thermal groups that are rising into the air, like mm-hmm. boiling water. And <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it yeah, you can find them there. And the reason it's just so thick with birds is because none of them are flying over the ocean. A lot of other birds when they're migrating are either doing it at night or they're flying over the ocean or both. And so it's like a unique combination of factors that makes these hawks and their huge migration so huge. Yeah. So as you cross through Central America and you make your way into South America, your crowds of birds begin to spread out again. Um, But you, Nicola Swainson's hawk, you cross the upper Andes like most of your hawk brethren do. You're a young bird, so you're going to go where most of the birds go so you can learn the route. 
You cross the upper Andes in Colombia, and you travel along the eastern foothills of the Andes, which you, Nicola Human, may know, <laughs> being a grassland groupie, uh, is a lot of grassland habitat. And as you travel south through western Brazil, which of course is also very grassland heavy, savannas, kind of perfect habitat for a Swainson's hawk, um, you will enter eastern Bolivia and finally arrive at Argentina. And here in Argentina is where almost all of the Swainson's hawks that were spread across North America uh, are going to spend their winter. And congratulations, you have essentially chased summer across the hemisphere. So I know us <laughs> in North America, like everybody talks about this stage in the Swainson's hawk life as like their wintering grounds, which is yeah. so misleading and stupid because it is technically winter in North America, but they're not in North America they're in Argentina, and there it is the Austral summer. So they mm. have just chased summer across the hemispheres and continue to have summer forever. <laughs> and that's their Isn't, life. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that true for, like, most migrating animals? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I just wanted to point it out because yeah. it's, a, it's a weirdly northern hemisphere slash western-centric perspective mm -hmm. to say that it's their wintering grounds. Like, they're not... It makes yeah. you picture like a Kansas winter or something. Um, mm. But it's not actually, or at least historically, in Argentina, their austral summer is incredibly similar to the Great Plains and their summer. So um, historically, if you had been able to like teleport yourself from, say, Kansas Great Plains in the summer to Argentina Great Plains, <laughs> or sorry, Pampas, in uh, the other season, mm -hmm. it would feel pretty much the same, uh, which is kind of incredible to me. And uh, it is still true in, in the places in Argentina where they have native grasslands. And uh, of course, now in a lot of their breeding range and their non-breeding range, uh, there's a lot of agriculture. Mm -hmm. But the Swainson's hawk uh, has really adapted well to the agriculture. As long as it's like cereal grains and stuff like that, uh, they will nest up in North America near wheat fields. Um, you, Nicole the Swainson's hawk, may spend your time in Argentina chasing grasshoppers in cereal grain fields. Um, you might hang out uh, where a alfalfa is grazed by cattle. Um and it seems like a lot of the members of the species in the winter are hanging out in uh, fields where sunflowers and corn might be abundant. But things still look a little different <laughs> uh, in these non-breeding grounds. Uh, you are moving around quite a lot and you are super, super, super gregarious. So basically from the minute you are not in or around a nest, you are just hanging out with all of your buddies. Um, and you're also following where you go kind of based on like regional things that are happening on the ground. Like how is the land being used here this year? What's the topography like? What is the climate like this year? For example, there was a huge, huge drop off in 1996. So in La Pampa, there were like huge high concentrations of Swainson's hawks in that summer. But then the next season, there was an El Nino, and so there was a huge increase in rainfall, and there were only a few individuals there, period. Okay. So 
it changes a lot based on what's happening on the ground in those locations during that year. Yeah. That's that's kind of fun because then you can, in the future, predict like where they're going to be, too. Yeah, or you can try. There haven't been as many studies about their distribution down there, mm-hmm. but um, there have been a lot of efforts made to make like predictive maps using like field records and stuff. Yeah. And it's shown that basically they're super vagrant during their quote-unquote wintering grounds or uh-huh. down in the austral summer. So like while most of the population is probably hanging out in Argentina in one place or another during this period of time, uh, sometimes they pop up in Western Brazil and they're hanging out in the Cejado or uh, the Pantanal. Sometimes they pop up in Colombia or Costa Rica. And some of them will even hang out in Panama, Florida. Um, I mentioned Costa Rica already, but, you know, places that uh, are a little further outside of where you would imagine them being at any given year. I guess historically there was a population that overwintered in California too, but I don't think that they stay there now. Hmm. Um, be- I, I think the historic range they were in got converted to urban areas. Mm-hmm. So, But the good news is they're doing great overall otherwise. Okay, nice. we're optimistic today. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and during that season, it's not like you're picking one spot that looks good that year and then staying there. You're actually kind of like hanging out with all your buddies, moving around quite a bit. So mm-hmm. um, in some... Uh, pfft, predictive maps that have been put together to kind of illustrate these movements. Um, They have been reported being pretty concentrated in Paraguay in December and February specifically. So like they'll pop up in different places during different parts of that year. And it seems like they're basically following where the most grasshoppers are (laughs) because that's what they're really chasing down in Argentina. And while they're in South America, they are still feeding exclusively on insects. Lots of caterpillars, again, mostly grasshoppers. Um, but the, these flocks of birds can be up to like 12,000 hawks hanging wow. out in these large numbers. So again, it looks very different from like your flock of 100 that was starting out, starting out up in like Arizona or something. Mm-hmm. So these just huge movements of hawks, uh, just amazing. <laughs> I love how gregarious they are. Um, and otherwise your life there is pretty much the same. You are going to be hunting communally with all your buddies on the ground, walking on it or catching prey in the air with your talons. Um, just enjoying the life in this beautiful summer grassland in South America until it's time for you to go northward again. Um, which is a journey that's very similar to the journey you took to get back down there. Um, Take the same routes, you take the same methods. Really, uh, the only thing that's different is the direction that you're heading and the way the winds have shifted to allow uh, a benefit to you in heading the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So now you've got some winds that are pushing you up north and uh, you're riding those warm thermals all the way. I also... (laughs) I forgot to mention oh, gosh. this. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so sorry. The the journey takes you sixty days, and this isn't the thing I forgot to mention. I'm gonna I'm gonna save that for fun. Oh later god. On. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you so you head up and you you go. Uh, the the whole trip 
in one direction can be as much as 20,000 kilometers to reach your destination. Um, so, so this migrated migration that you're undergoing is really spectacular on the world stage in general. Like this is the longest migration that a hawk species takes. Uh, the only longer migration for a bird of prey is specifically the Arctic peregrine falcon subspecies. Um, but that's it. There's no other bird of prey that has a migration as long as the Swainson's hawk. Uh, and there's no others that are like quite so gregarious in this spectacular way either. Um, on your way back up, <laughs> you remember hearing um, from one of the friends you made while you were down in Argentina who uh, was from California. And uh, you heard that uh, he actually had uh, two dads. And you were like, wow, that sounds kind of nice. Uh, <laughs> so you head to California where you form a nice thruple with uh, two males who are your exclusive partners who <laughs> work together to build a nest with for you. Uh, and they both work to feed the babies for you. And you get it on with both of them. And you form a nice, beautiful, healthy, polyandrous relationship with them. Um, which is just a fun little side note uh, that I <laughs> wanted, wanted to include. <laughs> Do only Californian uh, Swainson's hawks form thruples? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I can't imagine that it's only in California, but that's the only place where they, they have like data about this specific phenomenon. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, normally they only form a thruple for like one to two years, except for that one thruple... They don't use the word thruple, but they should. Um, except for that one thruple that was, like, a consistent thruple for eight years. And they wow. even, like, traded out partners. So, like, I think during the course of those eight years, uh, one of the males and the female of that partnership got replaced. And they just continued existing as a thruple and, like, recruited somebody else to come into the relationship. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is really cool. And... One of, okay, this is I, I discovered this actually this morning, um, and it made me crack up because um, I had gone on like a slight tangent where I was like, "What is the systematic relationship of Swainson's hawks to other hawks?" Which is always a question that I Rachel ask myself because I am fascinated by this particular topic. This is my last little tidbit for today because I think it's hilarious and fun, <laughs> interesting. I don't know. Yeah. Um, they are most related to Galapagos hawks. That's their closest. Hmm. relative on the planet yeah galapagos hawks and hawaiian hawks which is very interesting to me um and this is interesting because i was uh <laughs> having a conversation with our friend alan earlier this morning uh about galapagos hawks because i mentioned them and he was like wow i love galapagos hawks and it turns out that galapagos hawks are incredibly polyandrous like they have straight up harems <laughs> so they are also a very gregarious hawk that has polyandry in that species. And there is absolutely no study that I was able to locate about this that made a correlation between Swainson's hawks and Galapagos hawks in this way. Mm -hmm. But there's a part of my mind that learned this at the same, like very similarly at the same time this morning, right? And I was yeah. like, ah, this makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> maybe maybe uh, some polyandrous pairings and the gregarious nature of the Swainson's hawk is something that it shares in common with the Galapagos hawk because 
126,000 years ago, when they split apart from their common ancestor, they were just a gregarious, polyamorous hawk. And uh, they retain that commonality to this day. You know, maybe that's, maybe there's a something to that. <laughs> I think it's neat. Hey, yeah, you never know. <laughs> yeah. So, Nicole, uh, in conclusion of our Swainson's Hawk episode, um, you've, you've lived the life of a Swainson's Hawk. Uh, you get the best of the bird world, which is being a hawk, killing things, uh, getting to move around a lot, having lots of friends, uh, sometimes engaging in uh, a nice thruple where the female has two doting males that are exclusively partnered with her, and um, an impending grasshopper apocalypse, which is <laughs> truly only going to benefit your species, even if it ravages the cereal grains that make up a lot of the habitat they live in. Um, you know, I'm really excited to have a hawk species working together with us to fight the grasshopper apocalypse that's coming when the climate wars. So uh, yes. that is the conclusion I think we should draw from this. And I think that we should look forward to uh, living alongside these birds for uh, many years to come. Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, gosh. I had, like, um, different locations picked out because there are different interesting things I read about those locations. Like, in Oklahoma, they, like, just absolutely go after, f like, free-tailed bats. You know, the mm. Mexican free-tailed bats that uh, live in, in caves there. They'll just, like, boom, 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 like, multi-hit them <laughs> in the air. You know, they're great. Uh -huh. um, in Canada, there's, there's a population of Swainson's hawks near Alberta, Canada, where 48% of the burrowing owls there get eaten by Swainson's hawks during the nesting season. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> I know. Uh, so if you had grown up in Canada, you were going to be fed burrowing owls as a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah, I just thought that was very interesting. Mm -hmm. Was the California one just the thruple? Uh, yeah, you have two dads and you eat a lot of voles. Anything else you'd like to add, Rachel? Well, I would like to, to point out that according to the Birds of the World, uh, which is like one of the premier, uh, I don't need to give them an ad. Um, you know who they are. They're great. Cornell is fantastic. But anyway, <laughs> they they say that our priorities for future research have to do with um, the ecology of Swainson's hawks during migration in South America. And it's like, yes, that's really important. I think it's really good to learn more about their habits in South America. Uh, but I would like to file a complaint, which is that uh, locating more information on Swainson Hawk thruples is not one of the things they list as something they want to research more on. And I think that's terrible. A shame. Yeah, I really want to know more about Swainson's Hawk thruples. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> Thanks. Well, Thanks for listening. The Best Biome is produced through a nonprofit, Grassland Groupies, dedicated to inspiring the conservation of grasslands. In the show notes, you can find our website, phone number, and social media accounts. Text, call, or tweet your suggestions, fan mail, or hate mail. If you enjoyed the show and want to support us, tell us your friend. What? Yes, tell us your friends. Give their names to us. <laughs> <laughs> Recruit. Yeah, tell your friends and tell them to rate us on Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. <laughs> we could not do this without your support. We'll see you again in two weeks. 
where we'll have more encouraging news about the animals that will help us fight grasshopper apocalypses during the climate wars. Oh my god. Toodles! <laughs> Toodles? Toodles. What is that? I don't know. You don't get mad at me for saying okay, bye every time. You're such a dork. No, you're a dork. Um, I mean, yeah. But you are too. Thanks. Um, P.S. I love you. Oh, P.S. I love you.